recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays, Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Saturday, June 15th, 2013. The month is half over. Tonight I have Sword Brethren with me once again, and we're going to um, present a, a booklet which was published in 1939. The month is unknown. Of course, the war started in 1939, the Second World War, when um, Germany launched a preemptive assault against the Soviet Union. I'm sorry, that was a little later. Yeah, that well, was 1941, when, June. Yeah, right. When Germany invaded France and, and um, the Netherlands and Holland. And, well, that was 1940, May. You were thinking in oh, 1939, Poland, I, I suppose. Right? September 1939, Poland. Thank you. Uh, I need to be corrected, right? It's been too long since I've looked at any of this. Well, well anyway, this non-technical and summary examination, man, did I just botch the war dates, right? <laughs> Non-technical and summary examination of National Socialist German economic policy will also reveal several other truths which have been lost in the treachery of the Jewish media. Germany, in both world wars, was really only fighting for its rights to self-determination and economic independence. It was really only fighting for the same exact principles that the American patriots fought for in the 1780s and 90s, in, in, well, the 1780s, you know, in this nation. The same exact principles. And, and Hitler's real enemy was international finance. And whether it was manifested, whether it manifested itself in the form of Marxism or capitalism really didn't matter. There are two arms of the same beast which sought to, to exploit and oppress Germany along with the rest of the world. And the Jews just happened to be its eternal purveyors. The name of this booklet is German Economic Policy by Dr. Wilhelm Bauer of the German Institute for Business Research, Berlin, 1939, published by the Terramari Office. Do you have any opening remarks well, besides, you know, besides correcting me on, on I had it backwards, right? So right. We, well, botching oh, the dates aside, was, I actually <laughs> got into a debate in eighth grade with a teacher when she asked, you know, what day did World War II start? And I said September 3rd, 1939, when Britain and France sent their declarations to Germany. And she said, no, it started on September 1st, 1939, when Germany invaded Poland and I said, well, you know, some may want to say that, but no one forced Britain and France to follow up with a declaration of war two days later, which made World War II inevitable at that point. They took a, a border skirmish, basically, between Germany and Poland and turned it into an international conflagration. Well, right, but, but it had been building up for several years. Um, if you want to count the World War, you, you really should probably start with the invasion of France. If I mean, if you have to count um, Poland as the starting date for World War II, well, why don't you go back a little farther to Czechoslovakia? Right. Well, Czechoslovakia wasn't so much invaded as the Slovaks broke off because they didn't want to be in an unequal union with the Czechs. They hated Czechoslovakia as much as the Czechs pretty much hated it. And then the remainder of the rump state, what was left of Czechoslovakia, minus Slovakia and minus the Sudetenland, it just collapsed with riots. 
in an insurgency. So the Germans moved in to restore order and to stop the Soviets from moving in and making it a satellite. Well, well right. It's just that the, um, the German intervention in Czechoslovakia and the German reoccupation of the Rhineland, they were the first affronts to, to the Versailles Treaty, right? And, and right. to the, the aftermath of World War I. They were really the first affronts to that, the, the first military affronts to those, um, the, those provisions of the Versailles Treaty by Germany. Now, now, they aren't the starting date for the war simply because Britain didn't make them the war issue, right? It, it right. made the invasion of Poland the war issue. So, so it's really, it, it's, you know, when the war started, I'll tell you when World War II started. The day Adolf Hitler was elected, that's when World War II started. Well, that's when the Jews basically declared war. So it was inevitable that a, an economic war, a diplomatic war, an espionage war, a war of strikes and labor agitation would eventually explode into a hot shooting war. Hitler made a point, though. I was listening to one of his speeches, and I think it was in 37 or 38. He said, if when I had come to power, I had asked the men in Geneva, Paris, Amsterdam, London, and Manhattan, international, you know, international bankers of the world, how many billions of Reichsmarks shall I extract from the German people for your benefit this month? They would have clapped their hands and said, aha, at last, a reasonable, responsible leader in Germany. We can deal with this Hitler character. Instead, Hitler goes on to say, I told them, no more do you plunder our Volk. And he said, I put them on notice that their swindling was over in Germany. And of course, swindlers don't like to be told that their scheme is over. Absolutely. Uh, okay, I'm going to lay the foundation for, for this um, for, for our presentation of this booklet by reading. Uh, I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from this 1932 Munich speech, and, and I'm going to read another paragraph with some of my own comments from a 1932 emergency economic program of the NSDAP, the National Socialist. Workers Party, and, and then I'm going to read some passages from Mein Kampf, and they will basically show us where um, Hitler's economic understanding is in, in relationship to the state and to the people and to the, um, to, well, well that's, that is the German nation, right? I'm going to start with the Munich speech. This is from um, a speech of April 12th. 1922, it's, um, the, 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 the principal things said here are said throughout Mein Kampf. I mean, Adolf Hitler was a man who was very consistent in his thinking. And, and, and there's no doubt, when I read his speeches all the way up through 1945, and, and it hearkens, you know, my memory back to my reading of Mein Kampf a few years ago, well, well, it's it's um, Adolf Hitler really didn't change. He he really didn't. He didn't. He, you know, he may have changed in some minor respects, but his founding philosophies, where well, by which he began his his trek to power, that they were the same fr from his earliest speeches and and for the most part through through the entire Mein Kampf volume. Well, well, the two books really, it's two books. And right through the war, right through his speeches. So by, that, 
by that we're basically saying that he didn't make a bunch of false campaign promises and cheap slogans on the path to getting elected, and then the day after getting elected, he did a complete 180 and betrayed everything he claimed to have stood for, like the Western Democratic politicians. Well, well, absolutely. And and when you compare the principles and and the social and economic and, and political philosophies that he outlines in Mein Kampf, when you compare them to actual real working um, German policy documents, it, they're very consistent. That they are extremely consistent. Well, it seems in the West, we don't really know what we're getting, do we? When someone promises to do all of these wonderful things and put our society back on the right track, it's just basically a coin toss as to whether or not he's going to actually follow through on any of those things. Well, well right. Americans, are that they should have been marching on Washington with pitchforks and hoes. Farm implements. At least 100 years ago. At least a hundred years ago, from his um, nineteen twenty-two speech, and I quote, and, and he's talking about the aftermath of World War One and who profited from it, and, and who benefited the most from the conditions of Germany and, and the conditions imposed by Germany after the war, and and after the revolution. Mean, and, and he's referring to the. Um, the, the social democrat revolution and, and the Marxist revolutions. And if we ask who is responsible to, specifically to the Novemberists, I believe, and if we ask who is responsible for our misfortune, then we, we must inquire who profited by our collapse. And the answer to that question is that banks and stock exchanges are more flourishing than ever before. And this, in, in understanding Adolf Hitler, we're going to understand with this, with this policy that he was by no means a Marxist or a communist and, 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 or a socialist in that flavor of, of socialism that we've, we've come to. Um, socialism has come to be a euphemism for, for Marxism or, or, or communism, and, and that's just an incorrect use of the term, period. It, it just is. The, the, the Jews have absconded the term and used it to whitewash Bolshevik communism. That's not and, our fault. Well, well, right. That's not our fault, and that's not Hitler's fault. It, it just isn't. The, the, um, when we read this, we will see that Adolf Hitler, and, and there is a difference between free enterprise and um, a, a national sort of capitalism, there's a huge difference between that and the international capitalism, the, the vulture capitalism practiced by the Jews. Through, through, and, and it's practiced mostly through the, their securities and their international stock exchanges, where they can basically... Um, you, you know, every corporation that issues stock basically has the power to create money. And when stock is, is created by a corporation, it, it could sell this stock and basically raise funds. It's creating money is exactly what it's doing. It's creating money that it didn't have simply by issuing shares. Right, so people are basically gambling 
on the future potential of the company. So it's a form of legalized gambling. I only buy, the, I only pay five dollars a share if I figure I can sell it to you six months later for nine dollars a share, and you only pay me nine dollars a share because you think you're going to sell it to Clifton for fifteen dollars a share. And this continues on and on and on until eventually the bubble bursts. Well, well, right. But through this, through this um, artificial means of of creating money. These that these international corporations are able to that that they're like black holes. They're like Jewish black holes, and and, and they suck up everything and un, un, unendingly. And, and they could basically keep creating money by keep issuing stock and issuing stock. And and, and yeah, there's supposed to be regulators. That let's see how let's look at the world and, and see the entire um the the entire corporate valuation of the whole world in the hands of five or six families, Jewish banking families. Yeah, there's regulators. That worked real good for us. There are supposed to be regulators. That There are, there are supposed to be guidelines. There are supposed to be rules. The rules don't matter. The people that, that control those international banks, they, that they create the rules. It was a National Socialist pamphlet, I believe, and I was reading some of Hitler's writings on this. The um, The pamphlet explained that the moral panic at white slavery in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Austria-Hungary, the German Empire, France, Britain, the United States, it explained that this was basically just moralizing from people that weren't going to do anything about it, and all the regulators who were supposed to be out there protecting women and breaking up brothels, they were all basically organizations that had Jews at the heads of the various departments and agencies and bureaus, and of course nothing was going to happen because they were investigating their cousins, so nothing changed. And Hitler pointed out, too, that all the regulatory agencies in the, the Western democratic states were run by Jews, so you basically have Jews that are supposed to investigate and arrest other Jews, and that just doesn't happen. They, are, they sometimes slap a token fine at the most egregious offenders, but for the most part, unless you're a, a Bernie Madoff guy and it's a $50 billion, you know, multi-decade fraud and it just explodes across the papers and they can't do anything to cover it up, Th think of how many little Jew fraudsters are out there that are pocketing five, ten, twenty million, and we never hear about them. Well, well Bernie Madoff burned other Jews, right? That was right. His, and, and, and basically, you cannot regulate Satan. It's not possible. You can't regulate Satan. It doesn't happen. I'm sorry. You can't regulate immorality, and you can't regulate Satan. It don't. It doesn't happen. It, it's a slippery slope, and and you, you you end up in in hell every time. Let me get back to this speech, and I'll start from the beginning because I want um I, I really want to make it understood that Adolf Hitler's enemy was international finance capitalism. That is what destroyed Germany in the years leading up to the First World War. <clears throat> and if we ask who is responsible for our misfortune, then we must inquire who profited by our collapse. And the answer to that question is that banks and stock exchanges are more flourishing than ever before. We were told that capitalism would be destroyed. And when we ventured to remind one or other of these famous statesmen and said, don't forget that Jews too have capital. Then the answer was, what are you worrying about? Capitalism as a whole will now be destroyed. The whole people will now be free. 
We are not fighting Jewish or Christian capitalism. We are fighting very capitalism. We are making the people completely free. Christian capitalism, and, and that's the empty promises of, of the, um, the, the revolutionaries and other politicians before this time, right? Before the Weimar Republic. Christian capitalism is already as good as destroyed. The International Jewish Stock Exchange capital gains in proportion as the other loses ground. It is only the International Stock Exchange and loan capital, the so-called supra-state capital, which has profited from the collapse of our economic life. The capital which receives its character from the single supra-state, meaning an organization that, that, that transcends all nation states, from the single supra-state nation, and he's referring to the Jews, which is itself national to the core, which fancies itself to be above all other nations, which places itself above other nations and which already rules over them. Luke chapter 4, right? The international stock exchange capital would be unthinkable. It would never have come without its founders, the supranational, because they are intensely national, Jews. In, in other words, Jews stick together and they favor Jews, and that's how they get into the positions that they get in, because they are intensely nationalistic themselves. On the in, towards the the in group, and then that they are international. Right, but this is nothing new. They've been doing this ever since they infiltrated our kingdom in Israel. They took over the Pharisees and they opened up the door for more Edomites. Well, they've been doing this ever since the days of Hammurabi and Nimrod and Babylon. The Jew, back to Adolf Hitler, has not grown poorer. He gradually gets bloated. And if you don't believe me, I would ask you to go to one of our health resorts where you will find two sorts of visitors. The German who goes there perhaps for the first time for a long while to breathe a little fresh air and to recover his health and the Jew who goes there to lose his fat. And I will leave it there, because what we see that Adolf Hitler's real enemy was international finance, international capitalism. It, it wasn't his fault the Jew was behind it. It, it was the um, mechanism by which Germany was destroyed and, and, and lured in, into World War I. And we will see that in, in other aspects of Hitler's thinking in, in Mein Kampf, later on in this presentation. Well, I'm sure if the Kaiser had had a central bank controlled by the Jews, events would have unfolded differently in 1914. And, and we will see Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf spells out, spells out the cause for World War I as being Germany's assertion of its financial independence. And that's what he blames World War I on. And, and not that Germany's assertion is a bad thing, but that outside forces, international capital, would not let Germany have that independence. So, so it's the same thing going on today in Syria, in Libya, in Iraq, that these Arab countries, lots of oil or, or, or other um, assets, no central bank, well, they don't take loans, they don't take Jewish loans from, from Jew banks, well, they have to be destroyed because they're standing in the way of the world system. 
And, and it doesn't matter. that If Syria has nothing, it doesn't matter. If they don't have a central bank, they're standing in the way of the world system because they're potentially showing the rest of the world that you could live without the Jewish central banking system and the right. Jews making profit from every dollar that changes hands in your society every day. And most people That's can't destroyed. Most people can't conceive of existence without the banking system today, can they? Well, well, absolutely not. And and that's the problem is that we're locked into that dichotomy. I spoke about this a couple of months ago when we presented my 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 my, my um my editorial material on on Christian socialism. And um, we we are locked into that dichotomy between capitalism and communism, communism bad, capitalism good. The Jew profits either way. The Jew wins the game either way because you're locked into in, into a into rules that the Jew laid out that you have to play the field by. And, and as long as you're playing the field by one set of rules or the other, that's fine because the Jew wrote those rules. Right, well, the Jew, game. The, the Jew created the box that you're stuck in. And, and we could both stand in the box and argue back and forth, communism, capitalism, libertarianism, communism, capital, whatever, communism, capitalism, and, and it doesn't matter to the Jew because we're both in the box. Right, well, if I step out of the box and say fascism, then all of a sudden I'm evil. Well, well right. If you say fascism, national socialism, you're, all, you're, you're evil and you want to take over the world. What we're going to see today in, in this presentation, you know, Adolf Hitler, the National Socialist German economic policy, was highly concerned. It was highly concerned with its import-export balance sheets. Now, what country that wants to take over the world cares about its import-export balance sheets? That's incredible. I mean, come on. Well, when you read all of this material from National Socialist Germany, and, and this was the economic policy that they had in place, it, it's easy to see that the, the, the Jews have been lying to the general public for, for 80 years, 70 years. And, right. and it's just propaganda, that, that wartime propaganda that has now become history. And, and this is what, what kind of um, trash has filled the minds of most people because most people still have this, their, their head's full of this garbage. Well, you know, as we get more into it, that book I, I mentioned earlier, The Vampire Economy, Doing Business Under Fascism by the Austrian School of Thought economist, the Jew, Gunther Reimann, he actually has the nerve to write that at least half the time of a German manufacturer is spent on the problem of how to get scarce raw materials. And then he rants and raves about how the Nazis put all these hurdles in front of the manufacturers to keep them from getting materials. Well, but, well, a lot of those arguments are going to be diffused tonight, right? Right. Germany but was Germany, the subject of economic boycotts, so materials were scarce. Right. Well, well, first, that's first, right? But it was National Socialist policy to control imports. It absolutely was. And, and to encourage the, the um, synthesis of new materials to replace materials that Germany didn't have natively, right? Well, like artificial synthetic rubber, which we'll see tonight in, in this booklet by, by um, Wilhelm Bauer, which we're going to present, well, well tonight and maybe next week too. But, but um, that, that was German policy to control imports. However, 
Germany did allow corporations in, in crucial in, in matters which were crucial to um, the German economy. Germany freely allowed certain companies to, to import certain goods and, and created waivers for that. And, and it wasn't as, um, as bogged down a system as the libertarian capitalists like von Mises um, would have you believe that they're just arguing in defense of um, a, a non a, a policy of open borders and and non isolationism and, and and they're doing that because they want to um, uphold the status quo that that's the, the the basic line of thinking throughout most of the West. In, in England and America, that, that open borders and free trade are good. And, and that, that's how I know Mises wrote a long time ago, but that, that the outcome of, of the libertarian and, and the Reagan conservatism that we've seen in the 80s it is basically to all, can, can be all traced back to that. Can be all traced back to that type of capitalism that was promoted by Mises. No argument for me on that. That's absolutely correct, and those ideas still live with us today. It's the primary opposition, or we should say, I'm going to call it Her Majesty's Most Loyal Opposition, since it's not disloyal, it's Zog's loyal opposition. And in the capitalist Republican or the, um, the, the, the so-called free market or so semi-regulated market Republicans versus the social Democrat Democrats or the socialist Democrats, the libertarian Ron Paulites present themselves as a renegade, rogue, how should I say, revolutionary, third-party alternative, the free market capitalists, but they're controlled, approved opposition. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Jews invented libertarianism. Libertarianism, you know, libertarianism it is a, it is a really slick way to win over conservatives, to grasp conservatives from the jaws of conservative defeat. Conservatives, the, the mainstream conservatives in, in our political schools in the West, they've been defeated, I believe, primarily because they don't really know what the hell they've been supposed to be conserving. They have no idea what the hell they've been, that they've, that they've been conserving or trying to conserve, that they don't know what they should be conserving. And they basically that they had basically, in, in the jaws of defeat, because they have a total lack of mission definition, in the jaws of defeat, many of them have basically embraced libertarianism. Okay, well, if you want to be evil, I guess I'll deal with it, and, and you could go ahead and be evil as long as you have, allow me a right to be what I want to be. That's what libertarianism is. It's defeatism, and libertarianism gives Satan a right to exist in your community. That's what it does. It's compromising with evil, and of course you can't compromise with evil because evil is going to subvert you and own you. Libertarianism is Jewish. Okay, from the May 1932 Emergency Economic Program of the National Socialist Workers' Party. That might be People's Workers' Party. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I think it's People's Workers' Party. The Marxist objection that one must proletarianize 
the independent middle class in the interests of hurrying the arrival of the future Marxist state contradicts the interests of the German worker. Hitler was not a Marxist. The goal for the German worker must not be the proletarianizing of the middle class, but the deproletarianizing of the German worker and providing him with property. That's the antithesis to Marxism. Hitler knew that Jewish capitalism and Jewish Marxism first were really working hand in hand. Today, many Christian patriots or other white nationalists also realize that same thing. But most of us needed an additional 90 years to figure it out. National socialism was the antithesis to the artificial dichotomy of Marxism and capitalism that we are all currently caught up in. And for that reason, national socialism had to be destroyed by the Jew. And any non-Jew, any non-Jew, any Christian, any white nationalist who accepts economic theory from a Jew, from any Jew, has already lost the battle and has already submitted to slavery because the Jew really only hawks wares from his own artificial capitalist Marxist, Marxist dichotomy. And that's exactly what Mises does. And both capitalism and Marxism subscribe to the same Jewish-controlled central banking system and Jewish domination of the economies right. that... that, that um, of the economies wherever they prevail. So I agree. Ron Paul would get rid of the Federal Reserve. That seems pretty straightforward. I don't doubt that. But what's he going to do? Replace it with a Jew-run Treasury Department? What's he going to replace it with, period? He could get rid of the Federal Reserve, replace it with a Jew-run Federal Treasury Department, and we still have the same international banks issuing the same currency. Absolutely. He hasn't really talked. He's talking about ending the Fed... Has he talked about the, the creation of the currency? Right. Instead of end the Fed, why doesn't he talk about ending world Jewry and the Jewish money power? Well, well right. It, it doesn't matter who controls creation of the currency if creation of the currency is not in the hands of the people. Adolf Hitler put creation of the currency in the hands of the German people. And for that reason, too, he had to be eliminated. Well, you know, there's treasury bonds and, and, and the Jew banks write the United States a check. You can't have a professional, uh, professional wrestling match without two contenders, right? I mean, you need two belligerents in there. So we have the communists and the capitalists, and they put on a good show. So do we understand some of Adolf Hitler's um, founding economic and, and, and political principles? I, I have several quotes from my comp here. Well, which I think will help lend to, to give us a foundation for, for the presentation of this pamphlet. Uh, I could be wrong that there were hundreds of quotes from Mein Kampf that I thought today would, would be good in, in this respect, and I just um, can't, uh, can't throw them all in, right? Uh, I mean, we could sit here and read Mein Kampf. From Mein Kampf, page 95, a state has never arisen from commercial causes for the purpose of peacefully serving commercial ends. But states have always arisen from the instinct 
to maintain the racial group. Whether this instinct manifests itself in the heroic sphere or in the sphere of cunning and chicanery. In the first case, we have the Aryan states, based on the principles of work and cultural development. In the second case, we have the Jewish parasitic colonies. But as soon as economic interests began to predominate over, and, and this is an important concept, that because we suffer this in, in the West today, and, and we have suffered it for, since 1913, or, or maybe even a little before that, since the um, late 19th century, as soon as economic interests began to predominate over the racial and cultural instincts in a people or a state, these economic interests unloose the causes that lead to subjugation and oppression every time. From Mein Kampf, page 124, and this is... Um, basically Hitler, and it really starts on page 122, and it's a lot of good material here, and maybe before that. But this is basically Hitler describing his um, economic epiphany, which came at the hands of Gottfried Fetter. When I heard Gottfried Fetter's first lecture on the abolition of interest servitude, and, and this was before 19... Um, this was probably before 1921... When I heard Gottfried Fetter's first lecture on the abolition of the interest servitude, I understood immediately that here was a truth of transcendental importance for the future of the German people. The absolute separation of stock exchange capital from the economic life of the nation would make it possible to oppose the process of internationalization in German business. So Hitler wasn't against capitalism. He was against international stock exchange capital. And we're going to see that throughout this presentation, right? Would make it possible to oppose the process of internationalization in German business without at the same time attacking capital as such. For to do this would jeopardize the foundations of our national independence. The National Socialist Party appreciated and sought to uphold the rights of property owners, whether they were factory owners or, 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 or whatever level they held property at. Even the big landowners, Hitler sought to defend and not strip their land from them. I clearly saw what was developing in Germany. And I realized then that the stiffest fight we would have to wage would not be against the enemy, nations, but against international capital. In Fetter's speech, I found an effective rallying cry for our coming struggle. Here again, later events proved how correct was the impression we then had. The fools among our bourgeois politicians do not mock at us on this point anymore. For even those politicians now see, if they would speak the truth, that international stock exchange capital is not only the chief instigating factor in bringing on the war, he's talking about the First World War, but that now when the war is over, it turns the peace into a hell. The struggle against international finance capital and loan capital has become one of the most important points in the program on which the German nation has based its fight for economic freedom 
and independence. That's why World War I was fought, and that's why World War II was fought. From Mein Kampf, pages 156 and 157. Well, Bill, as an aside, you know, the, the clowns out there that say Hitler was a Rothschild agent, I know that's outside the scope of this program to address, but I just wanted to say, if he had been, then World War II would have been absolutely unnecessary, and it wouldn't have happened because the Jews would have owned the world. Of course. And this is also, let me say, this is also why Bizarre was toppled, for the same reason. Right, of course, if Hitler was a Rothschild, those people are just idiots. Those people like Jim Condit that claim that Hitler was a Rothschild agent, Hitler was a Jewish agent, all they're doing is running cover for the damn Jews. That's all they're doing. Jim Condit is basically running cover for Satan with, with his bullshit that Hitler was a Rothschild agent. I tried to tell him that, and, and, and well, he, he clearly has an agenda because he doesn't want to listen. He won't listen to any reason. From Mein Kampf, pages 156 and 157, the leading phase of Germany's superiority arose from the fact that, almost alone among all the Europe, other European nations, the German nation had made the strongest effort to preserve the national character of its economic structure, and for this reason was less subject than other countries to the power of international finance, though indeed there were many untoward symptoms in this regard also, and yet this superiority was a perilous one and turned out later to be one of the chief causes of the world war. Again, Hitler was talking about the first war. From Mein Kampf, page 192, the nationalization of the masses can be successfully achieved only if in the positive struggle to win the soul of the people, those who spread the international poison among them are exterminated. Adolf Hitler was an exterminationist. Yes, he was. In, in that regard, he was. However, that doesn't mean there was ever a holocaust. That's a hoax. Okay, I have a few lengthy quotes from Mein Kampf as, as we get this presentation going, but um, I think we sh should probably start. Uh, unless you have any further remarks, we should probably begin presenting Dr. Bauer's paper. All right. You want me to begin with Dr. Bauer? Yeah, that would be great. German economic policy, Dr. Wilhelm Bauer, German Institute for Business Research, Berlin. 1939, German Economic Policy Under Hitler, by Wilhelm Bauer. The following is based on a lecture which I gave at the America Institute Berlin on August 11, 1938, before a group of American professors headed by Professor Dr. Bruner of Teachers College, Columbia University, New York. That's a great place. It provides a short systematic sketch of the various measures of economic policy undertaken by the German government in the course of the past few years in order to regulate production and consumption in accordance with the aims of the German economic policy. For more detailed information, I refer the readers of this article to the weekly reports of the German Institute for Business Research, Institute für Konjunkturforschung, Berlin, Charlottenburg, 2, Fassmünster, 6. That seems well, it would be wonderful to get our hands on them. I'm sure it might be a treasure trove, but it would also be um, 
a deep mind, right? I wonder if these professors from Columbia, are they reliable or are they just taking back all the um, the lecture notes and going to portray a distorted view of Germany when they get back to America? I mean, do we know much about Columbia at this time? Had the Marxist Frankfurt School people really sunk their claws in? I don't know the answer to that. I'm sorry. Well, maybe that's worth pursuing. Might might want to we might want to look into that later down the road. State and business. The basis for all government intervention in business in Germany is to be found in the National Socialist conception of the relation between business and the state. According to the German theory, business is subordinated to the state. Formerly, it was believed that the fate of the state and of the nation lay in business, for it was said that business was of such great importance and so powerful that it controlled the state and determined state policies. In the National Socialist State, the relation between business and state is just the contrary. Today, the state or state policy controls or rules business. I must emphasize that in National Socialist eyes, the state incorporates in itself no absolute values, as is the case, for instance, in an absolute monarchy. The supreme value is the nation, which we will call in German Volksgemeinschaft, the community of the nation. The state is only the form of organization and the manifestation of the will of the people. Now, there you go right there. I have a definition from Mein Kampf on, on how Hitler defined the state. But, but I'd like to say right there we see that the attitude in, in, um, of, of, of National Socialist Germans towards the state is basically the same attitude which the American founders had towards governance. And, and that's the same attitude Jefferson had towards governance. But when, when, when he said that governments rule by the consent of the governed, he's basically saying the state is only the form of organization and manifestation of the will of the people. It, it's basically the same principle. It's just worded differently. From Mein Kampf, page 93, and, and Hitler, Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf, he gives a much longer definition of what the state is and, and what the state should be than this. It lasts for several pages. I like this particular um, quote because I, I believe it's fairly succinct and, and it's a good summary. And I'm going to quote um, a line or two beyond where I usually quote. I've quoted this on programs before. And, um, and that's because they have to do with economic activity. The state is a community of living beings who have kindred physical and spiritual natures organized for the purpose of assuring the conservation of their own kind and to help towards fulfilling those ends which providence has assigned to that particular race or racial branch. Therein and therein alone lie the purpose and meaning of a state. Economic activity is one of the many auxiliary means which are necessary for the attainment of those aims. But economic activity is never the origin or purpose of a state, except where a state has been originally founded on a false and unnatural basis. 
Now, now I think that, that that's an excellent summary of the, the purpose for the existence of a state. And it's also a, 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 the correct perspective on economic activity. And, and it's very much the same perspective that this nation was founded upon. Because when this nation was founded, corporate charters, and this is the way it worked in England also, it worked in England the same way. This comes right from, from English law. Corporate charters were temporary. They were granted by the legislature. The legislature granted a corporate charter for X number of years, and the corporation had to serve to the benefit of the state as well as to the benefit of the shareholders, or the state did not renew the corporate charter. It was that simple. That's why Andrew Jackson, he saw that the Second Bank of the United States was not serving the needs of the people, and what did he do? He refused to renew the charter. That's all he did. He refused to renew the charter. But somewhere... In, in American case law, I, I don't know how this happened. I really don't. I'm ignorant of it. That maybe this is a job for my friend North Powell. Somewhere in American case law, it, it came to be that in every state, these corporate charters, they, they, they stopped putting time limits on them, and they became permanent. And Thomas Jefferson warned us about, and, and he didn't use the word corporations, Thomas Jefferson warned us about the creation of permanent persons. And what he's talking about is, is the eternal corporation. is basically a permanent person. Well, and, you know, just and, to and, um, quote Andrew Jackson, he supposedly said this, and it seems reasonably sourced, gentlemen, I have been watching you for a long time, and I am convinced that you have used the funds of the bank to speculate in the breadstuffs of the country. When you won, you divided the profits amongst you, and when you lost, you charged it to the bank. You tell me that if I take the deposits from the bank and annul its charter, I shall ruin 10,000 families. That may be true, gentlemen, but that is your sin. Should I let you go on, you will ruin 50,000 families, and that would be my sin. You are a den of vipers and thieves. Absolutely. That, that, that was his attitude. If that, if that quote isn't really his quote, it was certainly his attitude. And also attributed to him, someone asked him, what was the um, foundational document upon which our republic or our society rested? He said, that book, sir, is the book upon which our republic rests, the Bible. Right. Right. That's absolutely true. And, 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 and Americans lost touch with that somehow, that they started watching vaudeville, I think, or, or, or um, a, a burlesque, maybe, or other Jewish entertainments, and they lost all that. Now we think and, that you know, the country Thomas was... Paine, Thomas Paine, and I've made this quote, and I'll probably make this quote again next week on a program I'm going to do with John Friend, but Thomas Paine said... In, in his writing, I don't remember if it was the rights of man. It may have been the rights of man. It may have been common sense. But he said that the, the law of God is the law of this land. And Americans lost that somewhere along the way. Well, we think that the founders were just a bunch of atheists, secularists, and deists who came over from Europe because they were sick of Christianity when in actuality the 
the pilgrims and most of the early re- religious refugees, they were just sick of Catholic well, versus Protestant. Lutheran right, versus but they were, they were sick of churchianity, a lot of them, right? right? They, were, they were sick <laughs> of state churches that their taxes had to support when they didn't agree with that denomination. In, in truth, Jefferson was a Christian, Franklin was a Christian, Adams was a Christian, Washington was a Christian, Payne. Payne, they'll, they'll, they'll all say Payne was a deist. Payne was a Christian, and, and he said the law of God is king in America. That's what he said. Right, and I've seen it that, in my perspective, and maybe I'm entirely wrong and I've just misread history and I'm an idiot, but the understanding I've come to gain through my studies of history is that America was essentially founded as a non-denominational Christian republic or a collection of republics and that you believe in God and your specific belief in Christ and doctrine and dogma is ultimately your business. You don't have to bow to the Pope. You don't have to adhere to Lutheranism or Calvinism as long as you have some relationship with Christ. The details and the particulars are left to the believer. Exactly. You were expected to be a Christian. Initially, that changed. With time and money. Time and money change everything, right? Time and money can create evolution. Maybe I'm exaggerating. <laughs> what would you like to proceed? I, I have another quote when we get into the aims. I'm going to, I'm going to, I, I have a lengthy quote from Mein Kampf um, from page 86, but I'll probably interrupt you. This means that the state, well, actually, let me go back a sentence. The supreme value is the nation, which we call in German Volksgemeinschaft, the community of the nation. The state is only the form of organization and the manifestation of the will of the people. So, in essence, the Germans do not have the belief that the people exist for the purpose of the state. The state is the manifestation of the collective will, the desires, the ambitions, the aspirations, the dreams of the masses. Absolutely. Where in America the government is God and we exist to worship it. Right. And in in National Socialist Germany, the important aspect of that is that because the state is the manifestation of the will of the people, economic institutions and and economic entities and and even um, economic needs cannot rule over the state as they do in America and all over the West today. Right. And let's break down the word, though, Volksgemeinschaft. A community of nation, uh, the community of the nation, but it's also a Volk community. So it's not just some government that we found. And 300 years later, Somalians, Hottentots, Bushmen, and Chinamen are coming in and claiming membership in the community. This country was founded for the founders and their posterity, and there weren't any Chinamen counted amongst them. So it's not simply a community that people can be grafted into. It's not some corporate entity. It's an organic biological entity. Absolutely. To continue, this means that the state is not concerned with economic conditions as long as they do not conflict with the welfare of the nation. The principle of private initiative has been maintained. However, where it seems necessary to bring business into line with the welfare of the nation, the state will not hesitate to intervene and direct business into the desired channels. In Germany, Contrary to the usual belief, we have no planned economy, but rather a directed economy, if I may use such an expression. And it seems that the purpose purpose of this booklet is to explain the 
directed economy of National Socialist Germany. And he's explaining it to Americans, right? Right. Well, most Americans seem to believe that, oh, Germany was a planned economy, a command economy, just like the Soviet Union. Hitler and Stalin were identical. Germany and the Soviets had the same economic system. You know, and one plus one equals seven, just because some Jew told them. Okay, this was printed in 1939, but he actually um, gave this lecture at the America Institute Berlin on August 11, 1938. So it was at least a year before the war officially started, right? But on right. August 11, 1938, Franklin Roosevelt was already um, meddling in, in, in Eastern Europe, and I believe in the Atlantic. Oh, absolutely. And I think it was 1936 when the U.S. gunboat Panay was um, sunk. I think it was on the Yangtze River. By the, ja the Japanese mistook it for a Chinese gunboat. Roosevelt had um, U.S. naval craft and ships and vessels engaged in neutrality missions in the middle of the Japanese war in China. So he was really jockeying for a war. Neutrality missions, right. I, I don't know. How, how can you put a gunboat on a river in the middle of a war zone and call it a neutrality patrol? If you want to stay neutral, you would tell your merchants, hey, if you go in these rivers, if you go in these ports, you're at your own risk. Do it at your own peril. We're not going to bail you out. We're neutral. Right. You don't put gunboats on the rivers. To continue, the aims. The aims of the present regulation of production can be summarized in a few words. First, the securing of supplies of raw materials for industry. All measures serving this aim are included in the four years plan, the aim of which is to make Germany as independent as possible of imports by increasing domestic production, or what the Austrians and the capitals would call autarky. And they hate autarky because they're internationalists and they want to tear down borders. Well, well right, and they want to exploit other nations. It's that simple. If Germany's not dependent on oil from anyone because they have synthetic oil plants, now they don't take their marching orders from the Soviets, the British, or the Americans. Right. I would like at this point to... Um... I have a few paragraphs, just a couple of paragraphs, actually, from page 86 of Mein Kampf. I like to present these because they mesh with the material in this chapter, and, and if we observe what's being said in both places, we'll see that basically that this German economic policy is, is an, ex, an, an extension and a codification of many ideas that Hitler had on, on, um, on how the German economy should function, as early as when he wrote Mein Kampf. Now, now, of course, by the time Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, he had already heard many lectures and studied um, men like Gottfried Federer to, great, to a great extent. Those lectures that he heard from Gottfried Federer, that was probably 1920 or 1921. And I'm not sure the exact year, but it was in that period for certain. It was before that speech, which I had just read from 1922. So, so it, it's very clear when that when that occurred, and that's in the pages of Mein Kampf also. So, so this is from Mein Kampf, page 86. Our industry and commerce had to be organized in such a manner as to secure an increase in the exports. So, so he's telling us that that he's he understands the 
the, the need for Germany to export goods as well as to import goods, and thus to be able to support our people by the increased purchasing power accruing from the profits to be made on foreign markets. And, and English policy, and, and this is one of the causes for the American Revolution, um, and, and for, for a lot of, the, well, let me say for a lot of the early tension between England and the American colonies, is that the American colonies were forbidden from manufacturing many types of goods. Well, they, were forced, they were forced to ship the raw materials to England, where the goods would be manufactured in England, and the finished goods sold back to Americans. Most examples, I believe they were forbidden from doing any metalworking. They weren't allowed to manufacture firearms. They weren't allowed to manufacture their own tools. And any metal, any metal tools had to come from Britain. And, of course, that was wildly unpopular. I mean, it, it, it almost goes without saying it was wildly unpopular. Just like when the British told the people in India, you can't march to the ocean and pick up a cup of salt water and then evaporate out the salt and make your own salt. You have to buy salt from Britain with the salt monopoly. And that was all British protectionism of its own industries at the expense of basically its own colonies and its own people, because most Americans were English at that time. Right. And that was a, a, a great source of, of the tension between the American colonies and, and England that built up to the revolution. Uh, I mean, the tax acts, the, the stamp acts and, and the, the tea tax and other things like that, that they that they were the fuse, right? That that they you know they helped blow it up, but the tensions had long been there, and most of it was over manufacturing, to to a great extent. All right, sure. I'm going to continue with uh, Mein Kampf, page eighty six. In the first place, too much importance cannot be placed on the necessity for adopting a policy which will make it possible to maintain a healthy peasant class as the basis of the national community. Many of our present evils have their origin exclusively in disproportion between the urban and rural portions of the population. A solid stock of small and medium farmers has at all times been the best protection which a nation could have against the social diseases that are prevalent today. Moreover, that is the only solution which guarantees the daily bread of a nation within the framework of its domestic national economy. And the great Ronald Reagan got rid of all, as, as many small family farms as he could, right? With this condition once guaranteed, industry and commerce would retire from the unhealthy position of foremost importance which they hold today and would take their due place within the general scheme of national economy, adjusting the balance between demand and supply. And we'll see that's a key issue in this economic policy. Thus, I'm sorry, I, I've lost my space. Thus, industry and commerce would no longer constitute the basis of the national subsistence, but would be auxiliary institutions by fulfilling their proper function, which is to adjust the balance between national production and national consumption. They render the national subsistence more or less independent of foreign countries and thus assure the freedom and the independence of the nation, especially at critical junctures in its history. And that's what Adolf Hitler did. He forced German industry 
to produce goods that Germany could sustain. And, and he forced them to, um, to innovate in a lot of ways. Like with our, our, well, well, the example here is artificial rubber. I'm sure there were many other innovations, even if I can't name them. And, um, and to limit imports to as great extent as possible because National Socialist Germany was truly concerned about its import-export balance. And we're going to see that in this paper in this booklet. Now, what country that wants to take over the world cares about its import-export balance, uh, its trade balance? Well, I you know, America doesn't care about its trade balance, and we have a global presence. If I was Germany, if I was Adolf Hitler, and if I wanted to take over England, I would import as much as I could from the British. I would ring up a zillion-dollar debt with, with, with England and break them so that they'd be broke and, and not pay them so that they'd be broke before I invaded them. And then I would just wipe the debt out. Right, have some, install some puppet government and their first act is to forgive the debt. Well, well, I own you now. So now that I own you, I don't owe you anything. What could I owe you? If you want to take over the world, you don't care about your export balance. You you don't care about the books when, when you want to be the only game in town. Well, that seems like the American business model right now. Well, well right. And, um, and, and basically, we want to be the only game in town, but we want to absorb ourselves into the world, I think. I think that's the plan there. It's not to take it over, but let the world take over us. That, that's what I see happening. Well, we're going full speed ahead, aren't we? We're on a course with, you know, catastrophe. All right, back to the article. So, yes. Second. An increase in domestic agricultural production with the aim of making Germany as far as possible self-sufficient in the field of foodstuffs. Germany has only a few raw materials and has always been faced with the necessity of importing the greater part of her raw material requirements. But, as you realize, imports can only be paid for out of export proceeds or other credit items in the balance of payments such as shipping, insurance, or proceeds from capital investments abroad. As a result of the war, Germany is no longer a creditor, but a debtor country. In other words, she was burdened with a tremendous indebtedness and had at her disposal no great income from investments abroad. While her other income from abroad is today less than it was before the war, Germany must therefore limit her imports to the extent of her exports, with the consequence that Germany's raw material and foodstuffs imports are dependent on the amount of goods which other countries are able and willing to take from her in payment. And this is all just common sense, right? This is common sense aimed at maintaining national sovereignty. Because if you don't have, if you have nothing, look at America today. If you have nothing but imports and you don't have any exports, then you have to do other things to raise funds. If you don't have money coming in from abroad, then you can't make payments to balance your, 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 your books unless you start selling your national resources or your, your lands and everything else that you could sell 
internally in order to raise cash to keep the books balanced or, or, or just the, print money endless, endlessly, right? Print the but, fiat currency and sell your um, future generations into slavery. But, but printing the fiat currency is the same thing as selling off your property, and this is right, why. Because then because, they turn around and buy all your property with the fiat currency. But, well, they turn around because when, when you print fiat currency, then your dollar, your, your monetary unit becomes severely devalued. And when it's severely devalued, then the other nations, the surrounding nations that are, you're trading with, find your, your property and, and goods very cheap compared to their currency. So right. they could easily buy you out anyway. So, so devaluation isn't the answer either because it's, it basically does the same thing, right? Right. Well, it's better to go without in, in those circumstances than... Well, well, and that's what Germany's plan was. That's what this economic plan, that, that's a major provision of this economic plan, is to do without the imports so that the, the nation can retain its sovereignty. Right. So you evaluate the item. Do we really need this? Is this really worth going into debt to China for? Are we talking about raw materials, you know, chromium, copper, things that we need, or are these just trinkets and crap that are going to wind up on the shelf at Walmart? Right. And Americans wonder why um, foreign nationals are able to come in here and buy properties and, and buy businesses so easily. And, and the answer is basically because Americans are so quick to purchase imported goods and, and export very little in comparison. Right. And in fact, we, we, yes, we, we exported all of our factories. Thank right, you. And, and the things China's interested in buying, the U.S. government won't sell them because of Department of Defense regulations, mainly military technology, microelectronics. Well, well they end up with all of that anyway. They just buy it from the Jews instead. Right. Indirect and direct regulation of production. The German government follows no definite theory in establishing the methods by which intervention in the field of production is to be accomplished. This is one of the most characteristic traits of National Socialist economic policy. In combating unemployment, the government did not follow one theory, such as the theory of direct public works or the theory of the stimulation of private initiative, but followed both theories impartially according to which seemed best at the time. The same is true of the regulation of production. And I've heard the capitalists, the Mises crowd, and even friends in, in our CI clique that follow Mises, few though they are, They've maintained that Germany would have imploded economically no later than the mid to late 40s, early 50s at the extreme latest, had it not been for the war because their economic policy of massive public works and deficit spending and debt spending was unsustainable, and they insist that Germany was importing huge amounts of goods on debt spending. I don't think that holds up. Germany no. went out of its way to restrict imports. Germany went out of their way to to, to um, restrict imports, and, and and debt spending was was not part of their policy. That they 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 created currency equivalent to their national product. That's how that worked. They created currency right. equivalent to their national product, and, and that's the same that that's the same scheme that the American government did for a while when they got rid of the gold reserve. That, that, that they went by the gross domestic product. 
Right. So if you want to print more money, just make sure you're producing enough goods so there are goods commensurate with that money. And then that would avoid inflation, right? Right. But now we just, well, I, I could only guess. It would be speculation, maybe educated speculation, but speculation all the same as to how many tens of trillions, hundreds of trillions of U.S. dollars are in existence right now, either electronically or physically. They don't publish that information anymore, so it's anybody's guess. But I, I guarantee you they've probably put an amount of USD in circulation that's five to six times our, our annual GDP. Oh, maybe more than that, because I don't think our annual GDP is much at all. <laughs> it, it's probably not a tenth what they think it is. And just the um, the derivatives market alone in 2007 was almost $500 trillion. That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, but should derivatives count as gross domestic product? No, but I'm just pointing out that that money had to come from somewhere. It's all just electronic fake money now. It's, it's not even fake paper money. It's fake electronic money. Everything's fake. You just got to be on the right side of the game so that you could make some fake money. And and that's the side of the game that only a few people are on, right? Right. Continuing. The various measures may be classified as one, indirect, and two, direct. The state undertakes indirect measures when it intervenes not in the production and capital investment themselves, but in conditions which govern them. There are four special groups of indirect measures. One, regulation of taxes, especially reduction of taxes. For example, in order to revive automobile production, which was at an extremely low level, and thus to stimulate motorization in Germany, which had lagged far behind the level of motorization in other countries, as early as 1933, the government abolished the tax on all new passenger cars, later extending this to all automobiles. This made automobiles much cheaper and increased the sales of the industry. In the last five years, these measures, together with the economic upswing, have brought about a great advance in automobile sales and a great improvement in German motorization. In 1932, only 19 out of every 1,000 people in Germany owned cars, as compared with 41 in France and 37 in Great Britain. Today, however, the figure for Germany is 35 in every 1,000, as compared with about 51 per 1,000 in France and Great Britain. And I'm sure in America it was probably three or 400 per 1,000. A further example of regulation of production by means of tax reductions was the exemption of short-term capital goods from income tax. After 1933, the value of these goods could be deducted from taxable income of the individual and from the taxable profits, profits of an enterprise. This stimulated the purchase of such goods and was a means of increasing the low activity of the capital goods industry. The elasticity of the National Socialist economic policy can be seen in the fact that this measure was repealed as soon as the capital goods industry was fully employed. Two, the second means of indirect regulation of production is price policy. This can take place in two ways, by a reduction in costs and by an increase in or guarantee of sales prices. These methods have been chiefly used in the field of agriculture where production reacts quickly to price changes. An example of this reduction may be seen 
in the prices for artificial fertilizer, farm machinery, and agricultural implements. On the other hand, by a scaling of farm prices, it has been possible to increase considerably the acreage given over to winter barley, the production of fiber plants and oil fruits, and the number of sheep. Three, closely related to this price policy is tariff policy, the utilization of which is necessary where domestic goods compete with foreign products. This is particularly important in the case of agricultural products, the prices of which are considerably lower on the world market than in Germany. Special boards have been set up in order to compensate for these differences in prices and are empowered to regulate imports. The last method of indirect regulation of production is the prohibition of new private issues on the capital market. Since new issues are permitted only for special purposes, all of those branches of trade and industry which are shut off from the capital market are thus limited in their capital investment possibilities. They can only extend their plants to the degree that their own funds allow. Thus, in 1933, a special board was set up under the control of the Reichsbank to which application must be made before new issues are floated. Permission is only granted for private issues in the case of companies which serve the needs of the four-year plan, where, moreover, no other possibility of financing their work exists. So gambling was over, right? That They couldn't just issue thousands of shares of stock and go buy the company next door. They couldn't do it. So in, in other words, if my company has $200 million in assets, I just can't go out and issue $4 billion in stock, obtain all the money, and then buy up half the province. No, you would have to actually work and sell goods and make money in order to spend money on new capital. Well, that, that's unfair. I mean, if you're a Jew, how are you going to get ahead? Well, well that's the point. That, that's, that, that's, you know, capital investment and the elimination of that loan money and, and that um, international stock exchange in, you know, meddling in the German economy, that, that's why Germany had to be destroyed. Right. Now, but the agriculture, Germany, the, the, the state was setting agricultural prices, and the farmers were probably reaping all of the benefits. But where in America, the, the farmers are, are, are being oppressed by the commodities exchanges, and the Jew reaps all of the benefits. The, 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 the investment money reaps all of the, the benefits, the futures, and, 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 um, uh, which is all gambling too. But they're gambling with, with, with the lives of all of our farmers. And ultimately our lives too. They're, they've driven food prices up enormously in the last five years. I'm sure you've noticed that. Absolutely. And, and, and that's been going on for a long time. That all of the food prices are artificial because it's based on, they're all based on speculation to, to a great degree. And you with capital investment policy? Um, I have a long quote here from Mein Kampf. We may be better off um, reserving this for part two because I, I want to quote from almost two pages of Mein Kampf here to... to um, See how exactly Hitler had blamed international stock exchanges for, for the, as being the causes of World War One, and, and what his and, and what other issues that he had 
with the inter- international stock exchanges and, and the, the stock exchanges in general but because of the depersonalization, he called it, of property ownership and the negative impact that that had on a nation. And, and another thing that, you know, that, that does, that depersonalization of property ownership, what, when stock exchange companies abroad even, most of the time your, your stockholders are abroad, own various corporations, is that, well, well first, they, the, the corporations um, tend to be seen as being above the law and above the state, what which happened in Germany, in which Hitler often complained about already in the citations that we've supplied, that these supranational stock exchanges and these supranational corporations, well, well um, nobody's held accountable when something goes wrong. That, that's the biggest problem with the depersonalization of property ownership. Uh, I mean, these companies, they, they might get a $10 million fine for, for, for poisoning a, towns of 50,000 people, but what's $10 million to them, or $100 million? to a lot of these big international corporations like IBM. So what? They pay the fine, and you know what happens when they pay the fine? Almost always, their stock price goes up. When, when, when these international corporations settle with, the, with, with these Jew lawyers in New York and, and, and um, over all of these infractions in our laws, that they get a fine that basically to them is a slap on a wrist, and, and it really hurts nobody because they'll just issue new stocks or bonds to cover the cost of the fine or whatever they have to do, and it, it really comes out of nobody's pocket except the fools that keep investing money in them, and, and, and they're bound to lose it. But nobody's really held accountable for a lot of the crimes that these corporations have been able to perpetrate. Well, uh, to an extent, and the... The consumers are held accountable because the corporation pays a fine and just raises the prices on their merchandise. Well, well right, well, whatever. But it, it really, the depersonalization of property ownership has um, caused much damage to, to our society in, in, in many different ways. And Adolf Hitler was rabidly opposed to that. And he, you know, he, he blamed a lot of the faults for the war on the interna- internationalization of the German economic structure before the, the war, meaning World War One, not World War Two. When, when World War Two was um, was looming o- over on the horizon, a- Adolf Hitler saw it coming, and, and he understood and he professed many times that it was the same international merchants who, who were and international bankers who were threatening war against Germany again, who, who, who had made war against Germany the first time, meaning in the Great War, in, in, in World War I. He knew that they were responsible for both of those wars. And they were the only ones really responsible for both of those wars, and he didn't want that war. If he wanted that war, he wouldn't have been concerned about how many exports and imports Germany had. Go ahead, import all you, all, all you want. We'll just... Um, Conquer the world tomorrow. It doesn't matter how much you import or export. It really doesn't. It's it's amazing how um, how Americans are so easily deceived by the Jewish media. It's absolutely amazing. And don't ever go investigate anything on their own. Well, I was listening to a presentation from the IHR, Mr. Weber, and. He pointed out that everything 
the West has accused Hitler of doing, conspiring to take over the world, that's what the victorious allies did. They divided up the world amongst themselves and forced the United Nations world government on the world in the aftermath of World War II. But that's the Jewish modus operandi in every regard, to cry foul that, that your oppressor is doing something to you when really that's what you're doing to him. I mean, we've seen that over and over again, whether we were presenting um, Russia number one in the Bolshevik Revolution or whether we, we were presenting the, um, the causes in the buildup to, to war in Germany or, or, or the causes of Operation Barbarossa. We've seen that again and again. You could go to the Holocaust well, whatever, or, or the wartime propaganda or the First World War, well, whatever the Jews are doing to you, that, that, that's what they're crying that you're doing to them. I mean, they're experts at that. That's one of their major um, propaganda methods. You know, all oh, the Germans, they're killing babies in their beds, and, and the Jews are killing babies in their beds. I mean, it, it's, it's what they do. There's even a Polish proverb, the Jew cries out in pain as he strikes you. Right. Okay, we're going to end this here, and, and we're going to present part two of this book. Well, it's not really part two, except that we didn't get it finished in one program, right? It, it's not part two of the booklet. It's part two of our presentation. We'll be here next week with, with part two of our presentation on German National Socialist German Economic Policy. I, I, I think it's important to get all this across. Well, you know, there's a lot of capitalist lies out there. The free market types, the libertarians, who we might as well just call libertines, they'd have us believe that national socialism, Germany, is not an outside-of-the-box solution, that it's basically functionally the same as Marxism-Leninism, and at the end of the day, the only option is to go with Mises and the Austrian school where that's just still, that's just, that's still inside the box. It's inside the well, paradigm well, that's been constructed for the goyim. It's still inside the box, and it's absolutely ignorant, because anybody that, that... This is why they want to smear Adolf Hitler with every smear possible, because nobody really wants... That, that nobody... that They don't want anybody to really look at the essence of what National Socialism was. Because right. it was Christian, and, and it was freedom-loving, and it was centered on the folk. Right. So they throw every possible smear. Hitler was an anti-Christian. Hitler was a Satanist, an Illuminati, a Rothschild agent, a fool society occultist. He was this. He was that. He was a Marxist. He was a homosexual. He was a sadist. He did this. He did that. And, but at the end of the day, they've thrown every lie, um, every lie, every slander, every foul slur and defamation possible at him. And for some people out there, one or two of the slurs stick, and they'll swear that they're dying day. Oh, Hitler was a Rothschild agent. I heard it from so-and-so when I was 20, and there's a book about it. Well, well, it's the same thing. It's the same scheme that they pulled with Christianity, right? They have totally misportrayed Christ and Christianity. And if Christians, well, most of these Christians, these mainstream church Christians, these Baptists, these evangelicals, if they actually read the words of Christ in the New Testament, they would disown Christ. And they do. When they're confronted, I know many identity Christians who, who just make a sport and I've done it myself at confronting mainstream Baptists, Methodists, Evangelicals with things that the Bible says, and, and they'll profess right up front, 
that's not in there. You're lying. Or I don't believe that. Or, or my pastor told me that doesn't mean what it says. Or, or whatever. They deny Christ because Christ has been totally misportrayed as well. Right. And, and they're not. You know, the Jew make, ma- makes a total lie and, and an image out of the lie, and, and their media and their money power is able to spread that lie everywhere, and, and people believe it because they would rather sit in the pulpit and have it shoveled down their throats than to actually go read the book for themselves. Right. So they're not worshiping the God of the Bible, Yahweh Elohim, as he exists in reality. They're worshiping the God of their own imagination as they've constructed him and conceived him to be. The the people really don't know Christ. Right, exactly. They don't know Christ, and they don't know Hitler. And if the people knew Christ, we wouldn't have needed Hitler. He'd have been a great architect or a great painter. If the people really knew Christ, the Jew would not exist. And the niggers would be back in Africa. And the Mexicans, they'd have never been allowed to come here. We wouldn't have all these problems that we have today. That's the way it is. But there are people out there who think we're supposed to work with them to build the kingdom. Well, well no, absolutely not. Well, we, we, we should have never lifted them to the, to the position that they're in so that they could multiply. They are the Mexicans and the Negroes. Uh, I'm, I'm reprinting my Joel Part 1 presentation, which I made back last April, will be in this month's Saxon Messenger. The theme of this month's Saxon Messenger is universalism. I circulated my editorial in a Christogenia... Um, in a Christogenia mailing two weeks ago it, it's um on what is it's titled what is universalism it defines universalism as identity christians i believe should define universalism and, and that way um certain snakes in the grass can't deny being universalist because indeed they are it reprints it reproduces clifton emheiser's the lie of universalism it reproduces um, Mark Downey's Why We Hate Jews, Part 3, which is excellent. And it reprints my, my Joel Part 1 presentation where I attest and, and aver and actually basically, I believe, prove that the locust plagues that devour Israel in the days, in the last days, as prophesied by Joel, are indeed that Joel talks about the plague of the locusts and the canker worms and the palmer worms and the caterpillars, and I would attest and, and demonstrate that Joel's really talking about the Chinese and the Mexicans and the Negroes and the Mestizos and, and right. the Arabs, right? Just as an aside. That, that, that's my assertion, and, and that's this month's Saxon Messenger. It'll be a good one to circulate. Certain universalists out there who have accused other teachers and professors, let's say legitimate teachers and professors and scholars of being anti-Semite shills, and they say that we hate the Jews just because. It's not that we woke up yesterday and said, well, gee, let's see, it's Friday, nothing good on TV, let's just start hating Jews. Well, well, if a man, if a man professes to be a Christian identity pastor and a white nationalist and a Ku Klux Klan pastor and, and this and that and the other thing, and he builds his ministry defending Jews, bastards, Negroes, Mexicans, 
That's, that, that, that should be a huge red flag. Right. And, and if you consider anti-Semite to be a term that is used to slur evil people, then you're in the wrong movement. He needs to be in the ADL-SPLC working for their intelligence files. Absolutely. Okay, this is William Fink, Christagenia.org. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, Sword Brethren. Thank you for being here. I will be here on Friday with my presentation of Acts Chapter 6. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Bye. Bye.